0: You may contribute a verse. I'm Josh Munkin, and this is the podcast You May Contribute A Verse, which has a simple mandate to give voice to creators, their struggles, successes, and the stories of their creation. And now... Jeff Miller and I go way back, back to the days before cell phones, when MTV played music videos, before the Matrix, before YouTube and the internet as we know them were invented. Back in our day, all we had were trumpets and trombones and marching band trips and we liked them. The best way I can introduce you to Jeff Miller and his work is, I think, through the lens of how I reintroduced myself to him over the years, as lots of high school friends do, by liking precisely one Facebook photo of the other person per year, just enough for it to not be creepy. I've seen, for the better part of the past two decades, what Jeff is as a singer-songwriter, touring putting in the work, playing for intimate crowds, releasing albums pretty steadily. What I didn't understand before our conversation, I do now, or at least I think I do a bit better. Jeff is a multi-instrumentalist, primarily playing looping guitar, which will make more sense as a concept once you've listened to our chat. I am an unbiased journalist when I say he's quite good at what he does. He's Nashville-based and hits the road seasonally across the Eastern US as he books, tours, plays, and loops. Here's Jeff Miller with a bit of wisdom about what he's learned being a working performing musician for two decades now.
1: One of the biggest things that I've learned through the years is if you want to get something done, you have to do it yourself. It's a you know an over, overly used phrase, I suppose, but it's been very true in my musical career. Then I would also say that, it, that it's perfectly fine to focus small, you know be okay with taking small steps, small things is, is perfectly fine rather than having grandiose, objectives
0: what follows is a refreshing and super fun conversation yes between two old high school buddies who are playing catch-up after decades but it's a lot more than that jeff miller has really put in the work and through a lot of exploration and tenacity has found a version of success that's on his terms by his own hand grown-up workable and allows him to keep producing the art he's passionate about stay tuned at the end of the episode for a sample of jeff's music as we outro to a song from jeff's 2016 album loops titled Cinquantuno. I got a lot of encouragement and wisdom from this conversation, and I'm glad to share Jeff Miller's verse. While we were waiting to start, I watched some more of your YouTube videos, and uh, I'm throwing out all my beginner questions, like level-setting questions, and I have to ask about the one where you are playing to preschoolers. Oh, geez. (laughs) Which was, I recognized five years ago, but uh, holy smokes, how adorable was that?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I'd, I kind of got, like, volunteered into that by a host I was staying with. Um, actually, uh, um, I, I don't know how helpful it is to name names, because since people don't know too much about us, I guess, but uh, a mutual friend of ours, that I stayed with Adrian Bischoff's parents. Yeah, yeah. Uh, north of Charlotte, North Carolina, and I guess his mom volunteers at this school sometimes, or maybe at least she did then and uh, that morning. She had arranged with the teachers or at least asked them if I could come into play and kind of asked me the night before. Okay, I'm not, I'm not, I wasn't doing anything. So <laughs> yeah, it was pretty fun. But
0: the, but the, ex, the expectation was not that you would be playing, playing to preschoolers.
1: I thought, I think I thought it was a middle school. I didn't think it I knew, I knew it was going to be children, but I didn't know it was going to be so young.
0: It was just the middle of a preschool, I guess, is where <laughs> the, the lines got crossed. <laughs> Maybe. Oh, that's funny. Um, one in any number of touring misadventures, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah uh, so, so, ok, I've asked about that. And we might go back to that because I think that's adorable. But um l- let's let's level set, I guess. So, um I was gonna start our conversation with a big dramatic reveal that we hadn't spoken in twenty years, but right. then we went and spoke spoke last week uh, and took all the air out of our dramatic moment. But, in essence.
1: Spoken once in 20 years.
0: Once in 20 years. Yeah. All right. It's uh, semi-dramatic. Uh, we can, we can characterize it as, as having been estranged. Um, but, <laughs> but we, yeah. So um, like what happens with most people that, were more than acquaintances but less than you know best friends enough to keep up for the last 20 years of not being in high school right um you know we've been aware of each other and i've seen you do your musician thing and tour and record and all that but i'm curious from your perspective who who are you now in 2019 as a musician how do you think yourself how do you define yourself oh wow
1: Um, that's a big question to start off with. Um, (laughs) that's okay. I'm just going to think for a little bit here you can edit out my brain. So I still call myself a touring singer songwriter. Um, but I do not write songs nearly as often as I used to, or as often as I would like to. So I think maybe a little bit more accurate. I mean, it's also a jack of all trades sorts of thing, you know, many hat wearing, um, thing that has happened over, I guess, the past 20 years, but a lot of my time is spent booking shows. Um, I do, you know, 99.5% of my, my own, my booking for my tours. So that,
0: except for, except for for the preschools,
1: that comes in at the 0.05% that I don't book. Um, so that takes up a lot of time. Uh, unfortunately that takes away from a lot of creative time. And I don't write well away from home. So uh, if I have friends who are musicians who, you know, talk about, oh, I'd write songs when I'm driving in the car and I get angry inside my head and I don't understand how they do that. Uh, so my writing has been best done in the same place, if that makes sense. Like if I, like repetition and like the environment being the same has been helpful for me. And I don't know if that, you know, I guess that's kind of been a detriment to my writing um maybe in the last 10 years i don't know um i'm getting way off point i think Uh
0: no 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 i don't i don't think so but um how much of that has to do with the tools that you use and i guess that leads to uh, the the other level setting question of you know you you have a particular style that i want to understand how you backed into which is guitar looping Mm -hmm. and other instrument looping um it it seems really difficult to write songs that way from my perspective as someone that doesn't really understand it but also to perform those looping songs live uh can you i guess walk through what what looping is and why you do it and and then i guess we can circle back around to whether or not that makes it hard to write on the road uh sure That's just Um, uh, how my brain works kind of thing can i answer it from the songwriting perspective first is that cool you can answer in whatever order (laughs) whatever (laughs) order makes sense i'm the podcaster i'll just rearrange this just yeah right (laughs) flows the best you're You're in
1: control yeah so i don't write songs uh typically with a looper at my feet um it's just just a guitar Typically, an uh, acoustic guitar. Every once in a while, if I feel like I'm, I don't know, like an electric guitar will help me to write a more high energy or like rock type song, I might pull out one of my electric guitars to write, but it's a lot easier just to get out an acoustic guitar. And I've written songs on the acoustic guitar fully intending them to turn into, you know, full band electric songs. So I don't think, I don't think the type of guitar has a huge impact on the way that I write. It probably has a small impact though. Um, but I don't have the looping pedals with me when I'm writing songs um, unless I know, and there been maybe like two or three songs where I knew that I wanted to do a looped part um, or several looped parts as an integral part of that song. And then I would try to write that and make sure it sounds good. And but typically what happens is I write a song, and I finish the song and then I start playing it live. And initially, I might just play it straight through with no looping at my shit at a show. And from time to time, I have shows that I would call like kind of like practice gigs, like getting paid to practice, kind of like loud bar gigs or something like that, where you can't tell if people are really paying attention. And I feel a little bit more free to try out stuff and experiment, um, if that makes sense. And so, so I will, I went use the looper there. And then over, you know, several or maybe a dozen times of playing through a new song, uh, the looped parts might flush themselves out and I'll eventually get settled on some looping parts and then so you asked about writing on the road so the loopers don't really have anything to do with the songwriting i mean typically so that's i think the thing for me about being on the road is my schedule is so flipped and messed up whenever i'm on tour that i can't get into a rhythm from day to day it might be i might have to drive three hours the next day i might only have to drive half an hour if i'm staying with someone who's really close to the venue and then I might have some free time, but I might, I'm in a, an unusual environment. There might be other people in the house and I don't want to bother people by, you know, singing while they're trying to get stuff done.
0: And, it's like a free concert yeah.
1: <laughs> or just a, an ongoing annoyance.
0: You're right?
1: Um, Cause I mean, like typically like, let me explain what I mean by that. Like typically in the early stages of writing a song, you know, like I might start off playing something on the guitar and find something that I like. And then if I don't have lyrics already, like. Figured out. I'm just going to sing like syllables or nonsense, you know, to, to try to figure out what uh, I want to say. You know, it's not like the song is coming out nicely while I'm writing it.
0: I could see where that might be a little disruptive.
1: <laughs> so that's not as cohesive as like when you go hear someone play a fully finished song.
0: Sure. Yeah.
1: Um, oh, so uh, yeah. One thing that must have cut out. I said we had another mutual acquaintance um, when I was my most productive this is when I still lived in Pittsburgh. I was living with my parents and um, Ryan Williams, who was a really good friend of mine we, uh, so you knew him because he played trombone in band. He gave me a copy of the key to his duplex. and uh, every morning and you know, I'd wake up, I'd uh, eat breakfast, shower, and then I I'd, I'd like pack my book bag with like my rhyming dictionary and thesaurus and uh, notebooks, and I'd bring my acoustic guitar and like a frozen lunch and uh just drive over to his his house and write pretty much all day
0: it's like you're shared your dedicated temporary right right that's the
1: only time i've ever had something like that and you know obviously people people are probably would probably think like well why don't you just do have a room in your house and i and i do um but i think the whole something about there's something about getting ready for work leaving and only being able to do that one thing for the most part that i think has been the most help to me and uh You know, people ask me about songwriting and I will often come back to like consistency and like habit are key for me, at least. And I think probably for most people, but I'm sure there are outlier or, you know, some songwriters who can just write whenever inspiration hits them or whatever. Um, I don't even like using that term. But for me, um, it's a day to day thing. Like if I'm not writing like three to five days a week uh, and each of those days at least getting in, say, like two hours, hopefully more Then I'm not really, I can't produce songs, at least not
0: easily. That's a lot of songwriting to me. I mean, to me, as somebody that doesn't write songs, it seems like a lot of time spent songwriting, but uh, there's a lot of refinement that goes into that.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm admittedly a slow ish writer. Like I, like people will write songs and then go back and edit. I'm constantly editing while I'm writing. Um, which might slow, I mean, I guess it slows the original process down. But I'm definitely, I'm de- I am think I'm definitely slower than the typical songwriter, uh, which is also why not being able to get in this habit of every day writing like a job, basically, um, has been uh, hurtful to my song output.
0: So I, I feel like we should probably, now that we're however long, this ends up being at least 10 minutes into our conversation, like okay. go back and just level set. Because uh, um, one of the things that I that that i came across before our conversation is the the fact that you've now hit um the 10-year anniversary or past the 10-year anniversary of can you hear the music which um correct me if i'm misstating this because i don't have my full research in front of me but was was your first uh was it your first looping album
1: uh not really um so i did a full band album in 2002 uh which i played most of the instruments on Um, everything except for the drums. And then in 2004, I came out with uh, my first live acoustic album, but it was live in the studio. So there's a lot of looping on that album. Um, I put that album out because people who were coming to shows, I was only performing solo, and people who came out to shows wanted something that sounded like my live performances, so that included a lot of looping. Um, But it, it was live in the studio. And then my third album... Uh, That was my first album I did after moving to Nashville. That was another full full band album and like a pretty fully produced, radio ready, uh, full band album. And then Can You Hear the Music was my fourth album. Went back to Pittsburgh to record a live album. It's my first and only live in front of an audience album. uh, And I had been looping for ten years at
0: that point. Oh gosh! So now you're looping for twenty years. Yeah, right. I was way way off base. Um, okay. so, so literally it has been 20 years that you have been a routinely performing musician.
1: Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, when I got into college, so I got a looper, a, my first looping pedal when I was, uh, at in college and I was, I would play like a coffee house gig about once a month then. And I would mess up on my loops pretty regularly for over a year until I got it down. It's kind of like playing another instrument while you're already playing and singing. So there was, there were plenty of mistakes in the early year and a half or so.
0: But what was it about that, that attracted you? Because it, I mean, having watched some of your videos of of your live performances and things, it's, I mean, you play a snippet and then you bend down to, to loop it and then you play another snippet. I mean, what, what was it about that, that, that got to you? I mean, aside from the attractiveness of how the music is layered, um, it's not necessarily a natural choice to make as someone that that goes out and performs. Sure,
1: sure. Live. Um, so I w- so I went to college at Berkeley College of Music in Boston, pretty well known music uh, college, and especially amongst like the mo- the rock pop uh, scene. And um, my hope, and this happened with a lot of bands, my hope was to go to college. Uh, I wasn't really intending to graduate per se. But I wanted to find like-minded musicians, maybe a, a songwriting partner, and form a band, and then just you know start recording and writing and touring. Uh, but I'm an introvert, and uh, so I got to college, and the first couple of years were kind of rough for me. Um, I kind of like clammed up. I don't clammed up's not the right word. I guess uh, boxed myself in. I retreated, you know, into myself kind of. So I like I was asked to play in a few different groups. Uh, but I never really went out on my own to to seek to form my own band. I just hoped that one of these groups would be something that clicked, and neither of them was really my st- style that I was trying to go for. Uh, so what happened in, I guess, there's the tur maybe of 97, I think it was, a couple friends uh, took me out to a, a Phil Keggy show. And Phil Keggy was my favorite guitar player. I'd started listening to him in high school and just, uh, I just mostly knew his like poppy rock type full band stuff. Um, and I had never seen him live in concert. So we went out to see him play and um, he was just there with, with an acoustic guitar and some, you know, a bunch of pedals on the, on the floor. And he was the first person I ever heard do the live looping and uh, the next christmas i I started researching looping pedals and there were only like two affordable ones like really available uh now there are scores of them it's confusing to even try to choose one but um so i went out and and bought my first looping pedal the next christmas and um my original intent so like phil keggy was doing all sorts of stuff that like i you know never dreamed of doing and layering like you talked about um And I never really dreamed of doing anything on caliber of what he was doing. My real original thought was like, oh, this is great. I can record like the guitar part for a verse while I'm playing live and then I can take a solo, you know, and that was really as far as I was thinking originally. But the more I, the more I did the looping, um, the more I played live shows, the more I realized, well, this can be used for a lot more things. And while I prefer to play with a band, uh, I guess it's the the next best thing
0: you do so for someone who's made his career on performing solo and looping yourself you you still do or would prefer to play with a band a full band
1: yeah i mean so with looping uh i mean no two shows or no two performances of a song that i do are the same per se but there are parts that i do pretty much the same every time i play the song all that to say, like I like the spontaneity of and flexibility of being able to play with a band. What by nature of looping, like there's there's much less flexibility. Uh, you record something and then you're kind of confined by that recording. If that makes
0: sense, you're you're, you're looped into it, <laughs> yeah, right? You're right? Huh? Yeah. So if I get the timeline right, then then it's been over twenty years since you've at least been interested in looping. If you I mean if you were introduced or or um witnessed Phil Kiggy's uh live performance back in ninety seven, that's when we were still in high school. Um, well, so I yeah, was
1: my first my first year of college, but yeah.
0: Okay. Uh okay. First
1: semester. Yeah. It was right after. I graduated in ninety seven. So then I started fall ninety seven.
0: You graduated in ninety seven? <laughs> I'm gonna edit this out, <laughs> but Did I uh you in two thousand? No, I graduated in ninety nine. Ninety nine. Okay, okay. Why did I always remember us as having graduated the same year? Oh, I have wow, no idea. That's
1: bizarre. Because I was immature. <laughs> yeah, that must
0: be it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, stunning revelation after uh, after twenty years. Maybe I'll leave this in just for the pure. pure... Well, I think that's
1: pretty. I think that's pretty funny. Since I was uh, drum major. Well,
0: yeah. So I I I had.
1: So you really you really dropped the ball on your memory.
0: I mean, one. I'm not entirely surprised. <laughs> But, but I mean, yeah, yeah. I
1: might've seen him in 98. I, th- I remember it being winter. No, it had to, I think it had to have been 97, but I started looping, I started looping in 98.
0: Yeah. Like, okay. You know, I mean, we don't need to be more pin, than 20 you know, la- like laser pinpoint the date or anything, yeah, but, yeah. uh, cause that's not the most staggering, uh, revelation from this conversation to me. <laughs> <laughs> is that you have now, uh, been out of high school for 22 years. Uh, <laughs> Wow. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I've just completely just flabbergasted myself. So, um, so when did you, when did you leave Pittsburgh? Cause we, so we were in high school together uh, uh, at, at the same time yep. for a couple of the years, but when, when did you leave Pittsburgh to pursue like a more, I I don't you can hmm. choose the word, but a more robust musical career to fi- find a different environment to play in.
1: Um, I'll backtrack, I guess, maybe a little bit, more than what your question is asking. So I don't think I would be doing music if I hadn't gone to college for music. So I left Pittsburgh to go to Berkeley and Boston in 97. And so I was there for, uh, I guess, so I, I went for two years and then I took a break and then I went back for my second half. So I still graduated in 2001, but it was a semester later than most of my colleagues. And then I went back to Pittsburgh lived with my parents for a few years. So I got back, I guess it was 2002, 97, 98. No, I guess, uh, I guess it had to have been still 2001. And then in 2000, oh yeah, it was the end of the fall semester of 2001 is when I technically finished at Berkeley. So I went back to Pittsburgh. It was basically 2002 when I was back in Pittsburgh. Um, and I went out to Los Angeles for a couple of weeks. Cause I had friends who had moved out there, you know, a half year earlier after they graduated, and I just kind of wanted to see what that was like, and I hated Los Angeles. And
0: uh, I hear it kind of sucks. <laughs> yeah, it just
1: wasn't. I think I would have, especially being an introvert. I think I would have just. I don't know. It would. It would not have worked for me. Um, and so I went back to Pittsburgh. And in the spring of 2004, I left for Nashville. And I mean, I was already committed to doing music, and I never really thought, I never expected to leave Pittsburgh, but after. College, I felt like the music scene had kind of been had taken a cycle. Like, so when we were in high school, uh, there were a bunch of bands getting a lot of label attention. Um, talked about uh, Rusted Root was probably the biggest of those bands, but it seemed like anyone associated with Rusted Root, like the labels were had scouts coming out to check out their shows because Pittsburgh was kind of a hot spot in the late 90s. Brownie Mary and the Clarks, and the Clarks still play. Um, and then the Gathering Field, so these were all like really popular bands in, the, in Pittsburgh in the late nineties. And then I was in college in the late nineties and the first couple of years of the aughts, the two thousands. And, uh, when I got back it just seemed like the excitement over those bands was kind of gone. The nightlife, the live venue scene was not very, uh, the landscape was not very wide for that. So I felt like I met most of the people who were doing things really in the Pittsburgh music scene and uh, there's a venue that uh, still, you know, still does quality shows and touring, and you know, internationally touring artists uh, called Club Cafe in Pittsburgh, and uh, you know, I played there a couple times, and I felt like, well, if I if I want to try to broaden uh, my musical horizons, and I need to go relocate, so I ended up at Nashville after briefly considering Austin, Texas. Seeing the yeah. geography of Texas made me want to be closer to the east and if it was 30 years ago then yes i mean like it was pretty much country was the only reason to move here um but over the past decades you know there's even a jazz scene in in nashville there's a, a metal scene in nashville that's fairly big and uh, you know all sorts of different bands have come out of the nashville area that aren't country you know ben folds moved here i think right before we moved in 2004 cheryl Cheryl crow also moved the same year it's a lot a lot more than just yeah
0: so and i'm I'm not going to make you rehash it but we had a separate conversation uh last week um i guess part of the goal and this gets to another question that that i want to ask part of the goal in moving to nashville is to pick a location that was gonna be tour friendly um, is going to be, uh, allow you to, to, to drive all over the, the Eastern seaboard in the Eastern part of the U S without, you know, having you drive through deserts and drive for <laughs> 10 hours to get to your next, your next gig. Um right. So a, as a, as a, as a touring hub, that was also a big part of it too.
1: Yes. Yeah. And that's why Austin kind of, I, I do think I would like the city of Austin a bit more and just the, the musical vibe there, but uh, just, Practically speaking, like that's why Austin didn't stay on my radar for very long.
0: I I can't help but not be a pure journalist and sort of relate this to my own artistic and creative experience. But, um, you know, I had a time where I um, where I I pursued an artistic career and it didn't work out. And so now, you know, my my frame of reference is um, is my day job. And I think in terms of goals and achievables and projects and things. And, um, so I don't, I don't want to put that mindset on you necessarily, but I am curious that if, if you now have, or if you ever had a particular goals as a musician, or is it just as nebulous as, um, you know, I I want to keep working and keep writing and keep putting out albums and, and, and keep, keep doing the grind. Do you have like a bit, like a bigger, bigger objectives in mind?
1: Um, Yes and no. I'd say the second, the latter summation that you gave was probably more accurate. Um, I always, uh, I always cringe at the, uh, like, what's your, what's your five-year plan question? Um, But yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's, I've always, and it's still true, even though I'm not writing as much as I would like to, wanted to continue creating, continue recording, continue writing continue playing. It you know, it turns out that I make most of my living from doing live shows. So that's kind of what by necessity uh I've focused more on. But um I've done some producing and I really enjoy that. And uh, I'll be doing a, a full length album, producing a full length album of someone else, you know, next next year. I would say typically the goal and I'm always thinking about it whether or not I'm actually writing for it, but the goal that's always sticking in my head is either like the next album the next tour since i you know i'm always having to plan ahead for tour planning of course so yeah i I don't i guess maybe as as nebulous as you described the second half of that is what my kind of answer is but um i've also gotten into submitting um mostly instrumental tunes for like commercial and tv uh library like sound libraries and uh hopefully eventually some of that stuff will pan out as well.
0: Is is that part of what informed Loops, your latest album? And I guess uh, part of that question is, can you introduce what Loops is? Sure. Um, it's two separate questions. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, Trying to think of the best place to introduce it. So uh, several years back, I mean, this is maybe five years now, um, I purchased a second looping pedal. So my first loop, my, my main looping pedal is this pedal called the Boomerang. And it's they were one of the early manufacturers of looping pedals, and it's a wide, I don't know, maybe two and a half feet wide pedal. So it's got several buttons on it. It's not just a single, when you think about guitar pedals, a lot of people just think a single foot switch. It has maybe six foot switches on it and a roller wheel for the volume of the loops. So it's very user-friendly, and that's what I've been looping on for over 20 years. But about five years ago, I purchased a tiny looper. It's called the Ditto Looper. And uh, But a bunch of companies make a similar version now that only has one foot switch on it, which is much more complicated. Uh, If you know what looping is, you plug a guitar in or any instrument, you can plug your vocal mic into some of them and you press a button and it starts recording whatever you're playing or singing. You press that button again and you can either have it stop and save it for later or have it immediately play back. And uh, if you're playing, if you have that loop playing back then you can also press a button again to start recording overdubs on top of that original loop. that's a simple way of explaining what looping is. Um, But I bought the second looping pedal to use in conjunction with my first looping pedal so that I could record a a loop and take it in and out on top of the first loop without Mm -hmm. there being any sort of time uh, syncing, if that makes sense. And so largely to get me used to this single foot switch operation, which is much less user-friendly, I started doing this loop of the week, series on my youtube page and the playlist still up there um, and i committed to doing a year's worth of these uh instrumental improvised tunes so every week i would just mess around with the looping pedals and come up with something and usually i would only spend about you know half an hour before focusing on whatever the initial loop uh motif would be and then i'd I'd pl- run through it maybe once or twice just to make sure that I felt comfortable looping overdub parts on it. And then I'd record it and I'd record anywhere from one take to, I don't know, six takes depending on how complex it was. Cause it's something I made up that day. So sometimes I, you know, obviously wasn't used to playing it. So, um, and then I would just take whatever take that I liked the most and I'd upload, upload that to YouTube for that week's loop of the week. And before I finished that year long, series um i think i started recording the album i had i got the idea like oh this would be cool to turn into an instrumental album i would pick 10 to 10 to 13 of my favorite pieces or the ones that people seem to like the most and re-record them in my studio and then make a uh, the new album out of that and then you had a question about the commercial and dv submissions
0: yeah yeah Well i mean i've got a whole bunch more questions Loop. about the business aspect of what you're doing but I, but i'm curious about the rationale behind switching from the boomerang to the ditto because it seems like it's a bit more limiting and it seems like there was a like a learning curve yes associated with switching Yeah, switching pedals
1: um if anyone if anyone ends up listening to this podcast who's uh looking to get into looping i always tell first-time loopers not to get a single pedal Looper as their first looper. Um, the helpful thing about single pedal loop pedal loopers is that they're smaller than your hand. They're you know you can take them, put them in your pocket if you want to. But that you know you can add it to your rig without taking up any real space. Um, and I didn't switch isn't quite the right word. I didn't switch from using the boomerang to the the Ditto. I added the Ditto to my setup. Um, so. Physically, what it looks like is I've got the, the boomerang, which again is about two and a half feet wide, maybe, I don't know, six inches deep. And then the ditto is like two inches wide by five inches deep. And I have it um, adhered to the boomerang with magnets. And so I just plug my guitar into the ditto. Then I plug the output of the ditto into the input of my boomerang and then the output of the boomerang to my PA. and um, So I think I said this earlier, the reason I got the Ditto, one, because of the the price. I mean, the single pedal loopers uh, typically cost $100 or less. So they're not cost prohibitive. And now I was able to set up a loop on the the boomerang and then also set up a separate loop on the Ditto. And I could start and stop the Ditto to add like a layer uh, that can come in and out on top of the boomerang. That was my original thought. But there are other things that I can do with it with this with this setup. Um because the ditto runs into the boomerang, if the ditto is playing a loop and I'm recording on the boomerang, then the boomerang is re-recording what the ditto is playing. So I can do strange uh like delay type effects and like offset time things. Um but there are there are modern looping pedals um, that have some of this functionality present in them, like like the idea of just being able to record like three separate loops and have like loop one play, and then bring loop two in and out over top of loop one. So that's a pretty common feature of the more expensive uh, modern looping pedals. But I, I liked the setup that I was, was using, so I didn't want to go out and relearn a whole new looping pedal. Uh, so I decided to just add this other looping pedal to the mix um, rather than completely change the format because I could just go out with my boomerang and not even bring the ditto. And that would be, that'd be fine. It would just take away some of the added.
0: I mean, you, you said this in a, yeah, you said this in a different way earlier, but, but it's essentially like you're adding another instrument. I mean, right. you can go on tour and have multiple guitars that are all tuned to different keys. This is, in essence, kind of a version of that. You're bringing another instrument that allows you to do a new thing with your music.
1: Yeah. I and mean, I can do all sorts of things because, like, my, my acoustic guitar, I have two acoustic guitars that have a pickup system in them that includes a microphone. And um, that the typical acoustic guitar pickup is called a piezo. It's this thin crystal that runs under the bridge and it picks up vibrations on the top of the guitar. The top is the part that's facing the audience typically when someone's playing an acoustic guitar and uh, so that old that traditional style of acoustic guitar pickup is fine for um transmitting like the sound of the strings playing but if you want to do like percussive sounds on the guitar it doesn't work so i have these microphones plus piezo pickups in two of my guitars and i can thump i can hit hit the top of the guitar and it sounds like a kick drum. I hit the bout of the guitar and it sounds like a snare drum. So just to piggyback on your statement about adding instruments, I can even, you know, I can do percussive sounds uh, and anything that I can do on the strings of the guitar. Of course.
0: If you hang your hat on, on live performance, which um, I've heard from other, other people is kind of, the way that you can expect to make a living from this sort of thing—not just music, but but other things that can lend themselves to performance—booking yourself and doing doing live things is is the way to do it. I would imagine that at least a portion of your audience would be pretty fascinated by what you're doing. I, I, I'm I'm guessing, and and here's the question: I'm guessing that some of your audience—is that what they're curious about with your music? You you would get a lot of questions at shows. I would think.
1: I'm thankful that there are still people who haven't heard of looping. Um, in the early years of, of when I was looping, every, any like I didn't know anyone else personally who used a looping pedal. And this I, I, every year I was like, certainly this is going to catch on more. Um, <clears throat> some people hear me say that I've been looping since 1998, and, and I, I did a couple shows in uh, the Atlanta area two or three weeks ago, and one person who had never seen or heard looping live before asked me if I invented it. <laughs> which which I thought was hilarious, but she was very serious. And you know, so I was like, oh well, I don't know exactly when digital looping got into the the scene, but even analog looping, like Les Paul, who is known you know, I guess largely for the Les Paul electric guitar, but it made more con- contributions where it comes to recording uh sound. Um he in the, I guess it was in the late 50s, maybe even mid-50s, was using tape machines to do something very similar. There's just a little bit more setup. It wasn't quite as uh, instantaneous, but he was doing it very quickly. If you, you know, considering that he had these big reel-to-reel tape machines that he was plugged into. Uh, but then in the, you know, in the 80s, well, I guess in the 70s, a little bit, you start to get digital effects. And then in the 80s and 90s, they uh, progressed. And so I think somewhere in the, Late 80s or early 90s, you probably had a dedicated looping pedal. But back to what I was originally saying, when I started using looping pedals, I didn't know anyone else personally. I, I knew you could find them online and, and find, hear of people who were looping. And every as every year passed, I thought, you know, for sure this is going to become less of a unique thing. And um, It didn't really explode, I would say, until, like, I don't know, Ed Sheeran became popular. Oh, that guy. So maybe... <laughs> Yeah, so people think he invented looping. And whenever I play, a lot of people say, oh, do you know about Ed Sheeran? As though, like, Ed Sheeran might be my inspiration for looping. Um, For better or for worse, um, you know, Ed Sheeran has made a huge mark on the looping scene. Um, But for me, it was Phil Keggy, who had been looping in the 90s for a while. And then um, I'm trying to think of your original question. Oh, yeah, I get questions about looping yes uh, some people don't think that it's real like I've had people think that I'm triggering sound samples because um, they're not I guess they're not paying close enough attention and they' they can't figure out that I've just recorded something and the epitome of this I did the show back in Pittsburgh while I was on tour this is I don't know 10 years ago now but I had started doing because I kept on getting these questions in the middle of my shows, I would take a little detour and explain the looping process to people so that they understood what I was doing. And I'd, you know, I'd slow it down. I would talk about it as I was doing it. I would lay down a simple loop and then I would say, you know, if I, if I record this loop with bad timing or if I play a wrong note, I can't fix it because it's been recorded. And every time it loops back, you'll hear that mistake. And then I would go on to say that I can overdub on top of it. And then I would actually play things and record them to show them the overdub process. Then I would show them I can make drum sounds on the guitar with the microphone pickup. And uh, I had done this at a show and this older man was in the audience while I did the little tutorial. And then during my set break, he walked up to me and he said, how are you, how are you making all these sounds? (laughs) And I don't know if he just wasn't, he must've not been paying attention to the tutorial. (laughs) And then for him personally, I, I walked through the whole process again and he still didn't he still didn't get it. He thought I was, he thought I was <laughs> had pre-recorded material. Um,
0: reminds me of the, the Arthur C. Clarke, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic and, and I guess that huh. it occurs to me that maybe that's maybe that's part of uh, I guess, either why people think you've invented it or why it maybe hasn't caught on. Because it is, I mean, there's a, there's gotta be a learning curve yes. and also you're locking yourself into the mistakes that you make. Yes.
1: I think that's what occurs. A lot of people from doing looping is timing mostly.
0: Yeah. Which I totally get. I mean, it, it, to me would require a degree of proficiency with your instruments that are not the looping pedals that would, you know, re- require you to, to have it down, which Based on everything that I've seen you perform, um, you, you've you've got it down pretty well. I mean, the the acoustic guitar, and it's a it's a compliment for sure, but it's meant as a as a like an observation that um, if you're going to do something advanced like looping, you don't want your own guitar to be right. a distraction or whatever the instrument is. You want to be proficient enough to say like, okay, well, this is something I'm going to do on top of of the, of just right. playing the guitar, which I've kind of got. Sure. Mastered is not the right word, but I've got this down pretty well. Sure. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And there's an an analogy here that escapes me, but um, I would say that if you're going to start looping, it's going to magnify. If you you have any issues with your musicality or your proficiency, it's going to magnify this.
0: So make sure you're good at your instrument first.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, or practice it in a space where you're comfortable uh, making mistakes, but it'll give you instantaneous feedback as to whether you're in time or whether you're, you know, playing the right notes. So it's kind of was pretty helpful in that.
0: We've touched on a couple of different aspects of this, but I'm curious about the, the business aspect of it cuz you can't just be you can't just be a musician. Mm-hmm. Uh you got to do you got to wear the other hats unless and referencing our other conversation unless you've got something like a booking agent or a manager yep. or something which most t- most Practicing artists can't uh, can't uh, can't make work or don't need yeah. to work. So you you do all that stuff yourself, which is, in a sense, a distraction from um, f- from the the songwriting and the recording, <laughs> but also is necessary as part of your day job, essentially.
1: Right. Yes, it's it's the definition of unnecessary evil.
0: Again, referencing not making you rehash what we'd already discussed previously, but but sort of trying to sum up. Um, what I understand to be the case is that you, you maybe tried to do the booking agent thing for a while and found that it wasn't that helpful. Um, And so you've, you have, I guess, for almost the entirety of your musical career, just done it yourself.
1: Correct. Yeah. So I moved to Nashville. A lot of people think like you move to one of these cities and like, Oh, you want to search for a record deal or, you know, or like uh, maybe become a, a, a demo singer or something. That's a big deal in Nashville is like people sing the demo uh, recordings that get of songs that get pitched to big country stars so people make a can make a decent living off of that or like session recording and um, but my my hope was to find booking representation and I figured well, there's got to be a plethora of that available in the Nashville area and uh, so I moved and then first year or two, maybe three, um, I spent a little time focusing on trying to figure out, how those connections are made. And I had about four, I guess I'm putting, I'm making air quotes right now Four booking agents. And, um, all of them caused me more work than they got me because I ended up having to, what I would, I guess you could say, babysit them. Like I would tell them I'm going on tour six months out. I want to be in these cities. And then I'd try to follow up with them. And then I, you know, some, some people I just think they not want to disappoint me. And so I would, I don't, a month later, I would check in and one of them would say, oh, I've got some, you know, I've got some leads, no one's confirmed yet. And then two months in, it's like, oh, not that stuff didn't pan out. And then now I'm scrambling to book the dates that this person said that she or he could find for me um, for that tour. And so, you know, in that, after one or two of those people, I I realized, you know, I can tell these people, here are the dates I want to get, but I'm still going to look for the dates because I don't trust, not that I, I would, I don't know, I would say trust the person, but trust that that person's able to find decent shows as quickly as I could find them. There was one, my wife's brother's wife. <laughs> so my so my brother-in-law's wife, we call, each, we call each other outlaws. She she helped me for a couple of years and she was the only person, she maybe did like 15% of my booking for a year and a half or two years. She's the only person that actually was
0: helpful. What then do you look for in a city that you're going to go to, in a venue that you're going to book. Are there places that you you look to? I mean, I know you know, ten, fifteen years on, you've got places that you're you're playing again that you hadn't played in a couple of years, or maybe that you go back to regularly. But what do you what do you look for in a place that you are looking to book?
1: You mean specifically in a new city that I've never played in, or just in in general?
0: I mean, either either yeah. or, um, even even within a city that you've been to, uh, a, a new place that you haven't been before, maybe.
1: In many respects, the the process is similar regardless. But for like a new city, so the, typically I will look in a new city because I know someone, uh, because I know someone in that city, and maybe you know, it's always almost always going to be something online. Someone has reached out to me and and said, "Oh, why don't you ever play in Bangor, Maine?" And, uh, yeah, that's too far. Then I will try to see if I know other people in that area. But whoever the original person who was maybe asked me, I would, you know, strike up a dialogue or they've already struck it up by asking me, why don't I play in that city? And then I will continue their conversation, you know, and ask about venues. And because you can only do so much searching online. I mean, it's an amazing resource. I don't know how any independent artists book tours twenty. Thirty years ago, but to have someone who actually lives in the area is much more helpful. And um, so, uh, initially, I want to find. Well, you know, I'll play anywhere at least once, but um, I prefer to play more listening room style venues rather than than bars per se. And uh, I do a lot of house concerts, and they're my favorite types of shows to do. And it's what it sounds like: it's a concert in someone's home or apartment or they abide if if people have never heard of a house concert then then I might try to talk them through what it is and maybe that person who originally asked me to come out and play will actually host a house concert and uh, that would probably be the best scenario. but um, there's a network of of house concerts. I'm on a, a website um, as a member a, an artist member and that website's called listeningroomnetwork.com and it's a group of artists and then also a group of hosts and venues that are searching to fill their schedules but there's you know after that then it's just a uh, you can search all sorts of different websites for venues um and then i just try to use my my own judgment and discretion as to whether that venue seems like a decent fit or whether they're going to be reliable if their website's up to date that's helpful sometimes people will recommend a venue and then i'll go look and they'll have the calendar up from six months ago and i like
0: uh, it's a little bit of a red don't. flag, right? Yeah. My presumption, maybe, or how how I'm thinking about what you're describing with these house concerts in particular, is that it's like Airbnb for music. I mean, huh, the, the, of, if yeah. you're if you're if you're a member of this listening listening room network, mm-hmm. then you you are, I guess. There's a bit of a reputation as far as your membership with that service goes to do it right and pay the artists that you're having come out. But essentially, these are these are people with houses that have space to house musicians or, or um, to allow them to set up their yes. their uh, their equipment, and then they just have a they throw a party and they pay the musician and they're the they're the musician at this house party.
1: Uh, I'm hesitant to use the word party. Um gathering <laughs> <laughs> I mean it is a, definitely a social gathering but it's not like I mean it is a listening it, it turned like so it usually opens up with like dinner and a social time which I guess you could kind of call the party aspect of it but when like the music starts it's a concert like it's these people sit down and, and listen and you know aren't being disruptive you know I mean like you know typically talk between songs and I like I love interacting with Uh, attendees, you know, between songs while we're talking. Um, But during the music, it's, it is a listening room and they pay an admission. It's usually, it's a suggested donation, I guess is the correct term. Um, And that's usually between 10 and $20 per person often depends on the the area, but it's, you know, $15 is pretty normal.
0: Yeah. I mean, I can, I, I can understand from the name what what house concert means but your explanation is it's a new concept to me uh maybe because i don't have any friends with big enough houses uh, or or lack of kids enough to uh to do that sort of thing
1: yeah i mean i don't know that's that's a common I, i guess i'd say misconception like it doesn't have to be amplified first of all um i mean in which case i obviously wouldn't be able to loop which would be okay but um i'd say like the smallest Smallest house, con- well, smallest house concert I ever, I've ever, i ever done, and I've done scores, you know, maybe probably over 100 of them in the last 15 years. Um, the smallest one I've ever done, I think, had like five people, uh, but that's not desired. That's intimate. <laughs> but yeah. I'd say like once you get around 15, 15 people is, starts to feel pretty decent. Uh, but the most, the highest number I've played for is probably about 70, and that was in
0: someone's backyard. 15, it starts to feel good, but at 70, How does that, I mean, is, is it like a, for, it's a broader question here, but is a bigger audience for you better? Or do you like how intimate the, 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 the the conversations or the relationships that you have with your audience are? Yeah,
1: that's a good question. Um, so for house concerts, and I guess in general there, I mean, there's like a sweet spot I would say. So the, one of the, both of the, the venues that I played in the, in the Atlanta area a few weeks ago were listening rooms. One was at a person's house in Atlanta, and they had, I think, right around 30 people, including the hosts. So, um, and that felt really good. Uh, I say, you know, if you get like the 70, 70 mark, like it's nearly impossible to have that that personal interaction, at least during the show. And then I say, look, just like in general for like, ven- like any given venue, I have this, I don't know, I, sh- I don't have a name for the the theory, but it's like, I, I don't I guess, again, also like the sweet spot thing, like, like obviously a, a restaurant or a bar wants to be able to pack the place. And that's theoretically why they're offering music on a certain night. But if it reaches a certain point, then people can't even, if they want to listen to the music, they can't because there's too many people and it's too loud. And uh, in those situations, I typically, it's kind of ironic, but I expect to make very few tips and sell very few albums or t-shirts when there's a lot of people there. But when there's, you know, like medium filled room, then that's so, usually yeah.
0: good. Huh. So there's a, I mean, sweet spot, then is yeah. the right term for it, which is essentially you, what's important to you for the sake of tips and, and relationship with your, with your audience is the ability to make con- eye contact with maybe huh. everybody that's in the room. And you can't do that when it gets yeah. over, like you said, like 30, 30, 40 people. Uh, they don't they don't feel any or as tight a connection with you in
1: particular. yeah, I, I think guess. that's I think it's a good way to look at it I I really thought of it specifically with the work what was it make a yeah making being able to actually make a connection like that's I mean that's important with music.
0: to properly appreciate what you do as a, a looping musician, you do or I would at least feel a mm, more understanding of what you're doing by sitting closer to the stage and watching you use the pedal and just be fascinated by the craft of what you're doing. And if you scale up to two or 300 people or a thousand people at a show, uh, there's no way it just looks like you on a stage just doing your thing. Um, right. Is that an audience you would seek out or that, that size? I, I, I long
1: ago gave up figuring out how like the science of bigger, better venues or whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, taking over thousand seat theaters and selling them out. Um, and that, that might sound defeatist to some people. And some people listening might think like, well, yeah, you just, you just gave up. Um, and uh, I mean, I feel free to think that, um, but I, you know, I, I used to read about, you know, you can get on these services that send you out like weekly emails and stuff. And I still get ones that I don't really want to get that I probably unsubscribe to um, that claim you have the secret to booking the best shows, you know, things like that. And there are theories about how you should go about doing it at the frequency that you should visit a town, how you should follow up with XYZ social media um, postings, you know, to make, to keep people interested. And it all just seemed, I, I gave it a go for a little bit and very quickly it just seemed completely like soul deflating. And I didn't, I didn't see it lasting on. And I could see bands and artists completely getting burnt out, um, and like hating every aspect of what they're doing if they try to do this. And you know, again, there's like no, it's not like there's a guarantee that it's going to work. And um, so I think focusing small has actually been much more helpful than worrying about playing any like huge venues. Um, I mean, the biggest crowd I ever played for was probably. In the two to three thousand range, but that was for a college orientation event, so it wasn't really like they didn't like pay to come see me. <laughs>
0: you were you were compensated, but uh, but you didn't yeah. maybe expect the full attention of the people that were there.
1: Exactly. So I mean, so and then another aspect that I think people don't think of, um, if I can try to nutshell it. So we'll go back to like a venue like Club Cafe in Pittsburgh, like that can hold. I'm not sure like the fire. Occupancy rating is, but I could probably hold upwards of a 130 before getting. I mean, that'd be very crowded. And I've played there and gotten, I think, around a hundred people to come out. And these are people paying for tickets, you know. And that sounds awesome. Like, so say you charge ten dollars a ticket, that sounds like you made a thousand dollars that night. But you didn't, if you're the artist, like the first. I think the one hundred and fifty or so goes taken off the top to the sound person, whoever's running sound that night. Uh, There's a, I think at least last time I played there, like a 17% uh, city amusement tax. So you've got a hundred and roughly $170 goes to the city and that's more than $300 taken off the top. And then you split the remaining half and half with the venue. So from a financial aspect, people, you know, don't seem to, to get that like playing what you might call a bona fide music venue oftentimes is not lucrative at all. Um, like, so I wouldn't be able to go to club cafe and sell hundred tickets every time I played there. You know, last time I played club cafe, I did a, a song, a songwriter night and we had four songwriters on the bill. And I think we sold about 65 or 70 tickets. Each of us left with about $75 a piece. Wow! And that's a week, a weekend gig.
0: Wow. That's incredible.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, like if it's about seven hundred dollars. Um, hundred fifty goes to the sound person. That's now you're down to five fifty. Uh, you got that seventeen percent city city amusement tax, and then half of it goes to the venue, and then you split it four ways. <laughs> so.
0: So I think you've given really good context to why what you said is not defeatist. I mean, you can be a 22 year old musician that wants to go book festivals and and whatever. Um, The the process of getting you know aging into your 30s and beyond is learning what the business is and learning that. Even though it seems counterintuitive, the more people doesn't mean more money. It, it means more other people that you have to compensate and more that's taken off the top. And so, yeah, I really I, I think that what to use kind of a crass like like corporate term, what your business model is reflects a good understanding of what you want to do, what you want to get out of being a musician and where you're most likely to make the highest premium.
1: Right. Yeah, and okay. then to take it back to the house concerts, um, so legally house concert hosts can't keep any of the money because you can't run a business out of your house typically, you know, without proper permits and stuff like that. So that's also right. why it's called a suggested donation. Zoning, Anyone could right. come and re- I guess refuse to pay the donation, you know, if they really want to be a jerk. <laughs> they,
0: they wouldn't be invited back, <laughs> right? I
1: right. Um, but so say say like in case of this Atlanta house concert, so thirty people were there. And I think the suggested donation was like fifteen dollars a person. I don't have to give that any of that like five hundred dollars or roughly to anybody else. So I maybe I had less than a third of my highest ticketed attendance at the, you know, Pittsburgh venue. But I'm making twice as much, you know. And it's an intimate concert where I can actually talk to people, I'm more likely to sign up on my news- newsletter, more likely to purchase an album or a shirt.
0: I mean, yeah.
1: So, yeah. So, I mean, the math of it, even, yeah, even just the math of it, just, I don't know, It over the years, yeah. you know, just made a lot more sense.
0: To, to me, as someone on the other end of that, generally speaking, um, you know, I take my kids to shows at the library where kids musicians come and play. And and I am much more likely to feel socially obligated and interested in buying cds that we, that we don't need or or merchandise that uh, <laughs> uh that we don't need just because you know you're supporting yeah yeah it's part that yep. it's part obligation because there aren't that many people there uh and it's part that that they're giving of themselves to have an intimate relationship where my kids are on stage not to say sure. that that's the model that you have but you have the, the grown-up version of that which sure. is you know you're talking about looping to your audience and making eye contact with them and telling them stories and jokes and things and right. it's um it's a it's a very different experience, um, that I think is really yeah it's really nice. Yeah. I, I, uh, is it is it comforting? Um, is it comforting to have found this sweet spot or kind of understand under uh, understand your relationship with your audiences? Comforting is a weird term to use. No, I think it's all right. I guess the essence of the question is: Are, are you are you definitely, kind of at peace definitely.
1: with? <laughs> like I have no. So I guess maybe like you know, teenager me had modest dreams of making it big and being famous or something like that. But I think even as a teenager, like the idea of fame to me was mostly distasteful. Um, you know, and this can sound contradictory when you're, when you're in any sort of entertainment uh, industry where the goal is to have people hear you. <laughs> um, and uh, I get that. Um, but I just think like, I've never, Once I at least once I started really getting into playing more regularly and stuff, the and and just grew older. I guess um, the idea of fame just was not a driving factor for me. Um, And so yes, so keeping things small and and where like you said, where I can actually make a, a connection with people, that's much more important to me than appearing larger than life or whatever. I would want. I guess, in fact, the opposite. Like, we hope to connect with people. Uh, I would hope most are most all true artists would hope to connect with people rather than to appear something they're not.
0: And the more you scale, the less pure that connection is. Yeah. Good. I'm glad. Um, I, I've, I've certainly learned a lot and I, I would actually, I would, I'm looking at my notes here. I would be very remiss if I didn't make sure that I asked all the questions that were on my list that I've been curious about for 20, twenty twenty years or how however years. long we've been connected on, on Facebook, but, um, <laughs> your logo, can you explain your logo with the, the, the one where you have the guitar up high?
1: Yes. That is a silhouette of me singing into my guitar. And, uh, I mentioned, I think earlier that my, yes, uh, that my two, two of my music guitars are outfitted with microphones as part of the pickup system. My looping pedals only accept quarter inch plugs, which is what people typically call instrument cables. Uh, and most microphone cables are what they call XLR. They are larger, larger plugs, not compatible with the quarter inch input. So that's, uh, that can be seen as like a, uh, what's the word? A, uh, a limiting factor of the of, of my pedals. I mean, there are pedals that are made that accept microphone cables, but mine only have the instrument cable inputs. Um, but for me, since I have the microphone pickup in the guitar, which I think makes the guitar sound much more natural, even if I wasn't singing into it, it, just playing wise, it sounds much more like a real acoustic guitar coming through speakers. But this gave me also the added benefit of being able to record vocals by singing into the guitar, and so. That, that that became kind of a, uh, I don't want to say gimmick, because I don't think it's really a gimmick, but like a point of interest. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, if you in the audience would see me do that, then it would make them pay more attention, if that makes sense. Um, so I, after a couple of years, I decided that that might be a good a good icon or like a good logo, a logo to keep. And that's something also that I could keep forever.
0: <laughs> yeah, for sure. So um, my own personal reflection on that, my impression before I was ever actually exposed to your music um, is that it is a nod to seventies like like rock funk music, um like like Jimi Hendrix style like you're supposed to be playing the acoustic guitar with your teeth. Uh, yeah, people. Um, yeah, the most people say they're
1: playing with my teeth or um drinking something out of my guitar or I lost <laughs> or I lost my pick in my guitar and I'm looking for it.
0: Take it, take it, whatever you <laughs> choose. I guess it's very charming. Ah, thanks. So, uh, I guess what's next? What's next on the horizon for you? I know you have a fall tour. At time of recording, you are mere, I guess, week or weeks away from uh, spending a couple weeks on the road. Yeah, uh,
1: the fall tour will run from September, I'm looking at a calendar, a printed calendar on my wall, um, September 19th until October 21st. So, this is typically my busiest tour of the year. Um, And then... And then I'll be back, I'm always back in time for Halloween for the kids, and I'll play locally and, and teach, and then the, the end of the winter, uh, late late February, early March, I'll be um, producing uh, that, that album that I mentioned for, and I just, I have not talked to him about what he wants to do about sharing things online, so I'm not going to mention who it is, but it's not, you know, it's not a household name, but it's someone, who a fan of mine who uh, has been coming to the my shows for several years, and talking to me, uh, slowly revealing over these years that he has been getting into songwriting and playing, trying to play out more. And then uh, earlier this year, he asked me if I would produce an album and with him.
0: Nice. So your first full album producer credit coming up, aside from right. your own yep. stuff, I guess, which is right. by by its sure. nature produced by you. Any any new albums? Any follow ups to Loops coming up?
1: Uh, no, I'm working on an album as a. A solid theme to it i'm working on a, a new lyrical album uh, and the theme is that all the songs titles are common uh, phrases like so i re- the most recent one that i finished is called square one and then like so things i mean i could give you like obvious examples that i probably won't write around like kick the bucket or um dead ringer or you know any any common sayings over the years i want all the songs to have that uh, again slowly i'm hoping to find the time to my, my my struggle as you may have gathered from talking is balancing and i don't even know if balancing is a good word but figuring out a way to do all the business stuff and then still consistently do the creative stuff and my challenge for a very long time has been how do i fit creative stuff in every day to make it habitual
0: i mean that's that's part of what i want to get out of this conversation is um wh- what what the struggle is, what's hard for you about this. And we we definitely got there. Uh, it's different for everybody, what some people can write tongues or words i mean the 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 sort of like tricking myself into creativity thing is what works for me writing in the car and dictating into my phone or or whatever so what works for me but 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 it seems if if i can put a an overly tidy button on the conversation it seems like the past 15 years have been a process of learning both what works exactly. for you artistically as well as what works for you like financially and business wise um, Seems like you have a real, real, a real mature, grown-up approach to your work that I appreciate. lot <laughs> <laughs> of high school, anymore. yeah, right, yeah. Um, what uh, can you can you plug all your all your socials? Where can people find you?
1: Sure, my uh, my main website is jeffmilleronline.com dot com, and uh, Facebook. I try to keep as much close to saying Jeff Miller online as possible as Facebook is slash Jeff Miller online. Uh, Twitter is J Miller online. Uh, The E and the F and the F were too many characters, which I guess is appropriate for Twitter. Uh, Instagram is also at Jeff Miller online. And what YouTube you can do Jeff Miller online, or I don't understand. I don't remember how I did this. uh, Jeff Miller Nashville. Somehow I got both of those names. See the same place, yeah.
0: Oh, both, nice.
1: Um, yeah. So at one point in just in Nashville, there were four musician Jeff Millers, including me. Just uh, in Nashville,
0: yeah. I'm kind of not surprised. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
1: Um, yeah. So if 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 I could, if there's one thing like I always hated the idea of make, making a made up stage name. Um, but if I could go back in in time and urge young jeff miller to do one thing it would have been to change my stage name but
0: gosh what would it what would it have well, been? i don't know
1: i made the joke that i would uh that i would call myself billy chicago <laughs> <laughs> yeah. i, I like that you laughed at that and that was a so you, i had this i had this monthly newsletter that i called jeff miller's crazy monthly newsletter and every month i would answer a question from a reader uh it's called question of the month and i think someone asked me about this very question about changing my name and um i can't remember my rationale but it's a it's it's billy joel in like the band chicago so for some reason billy chicago which i thought sounded i think of the idea was it sounded so ridiculous stupid um it had nothing to do with me really i mean i do love billy joel and i like chicago but
0: there you go That's what it has to do with you.
1: But yeah, I think the the biggest thing that has helped me to be okay with the name Jeff Miller as a performer is that I think, as far as I can tell, I'm the only one touring on a regular basis, and that makes a big difference.
0: And that hits at uh, something that I'm not not curious about anymore, but I was curious about in the run-up to our conversation, which is, um, like, how do you differentiate yourself online Mm. with uh, with branding as Jeff Miller? Um, It's not always that easy to find your stuff on like amazon music or spotify True. or whatever or at least it's it, it's it's in amongst other yes. um other other jeff millers that do you know are like christian artists yes. or techno artists or or what have you but but what i've gathered is the that...
1: hispanic uh spanish language rap artists it was the newest one wow. which i think is really strange to have a guy named jeff miller who's hispanic but there is one
0: uh he, he's the one that's earned billy chicago maybe <laughs> yeah perfect um yeah but uh, but 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 what's come out of this conversation to me is is um that's not where you're gonna make your fame and book your gigs is not on spotify necessarily right um you're you're locked into jeff miller branding now but um i guess there you can contradict this statement but it doesn't seem like that much of a need to 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 separate yourself out At this point, it's not
1: huge, but you make a good point about streaming services. And there's not much money in streaming services, so it's kind of a peripheral concern of mine anyway. But um, very few of the streaming services have handled common names well, Um, which which kind of baffles me um, because it was bound to come up. And like in the early days, so I'm my CDs and then then what has become just audio files have been distributed by a company called CD baby. And um, Mm. there, when I came out with my third album in between my second album coming out and the third, my third album coming out, another Jeff Miller who's this really good guitar player in Cincinnati released his first, uh, I think only um, instrumental album. And so if you went to CD baby, you could go CD baby.com slash Jeff Miller. And I'll bring you to my first album. Then you go slash Jeff Miller two, that'll uh, bring you to my second album. You go slash Jeff Miller three. It's this guitar player in Cincinnati. <laughs> and then whenever I came out with my third album and I added it to CD baby for distribution, they changed it to slash Miller Jeff. And I contacted them right away. And I said, you guys need to get on this. And like, it doesn't not just because like, my own selfish reasons, but just because of your cataloging is going to get totally messed up. Like if you do this with X number of artists and they said, no, don't worry about it. It's fine the way it is. And then you get to Spotify and now CD baby distributes to all of the streaming services that any, anyone, anyone who signed up with CD baby can click a box and say, yes, I want you to distribute me to Apple music, Amazon, Google play, Spotify, Pandora, etc. And now that all this stuff has been messed up, it all goes under the same artist. Uh, and it could have been easily rectified if taken care of at the, you know, the right point in history. <laughs> um, so now it's this annoying thing where every, I don't know, every couple of months I send a ping to Spotify and I say, this is, you know, this is not, these are not all the same people separate this out. And uh, CD Baby, now when you're, as an artist, if you log in, there's actually a tool or like a link that you can click, like in, and it's, I don't know exactly what they call it, but like, I think it might be called artist separations.
0: It sounds real severe. (laughs)
1: And it's because they didn't, well, they didn't, yeah, they didn't take care of it when they should have. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's annoying. (laughs) And it's, you know, it easily would have been avoidable if they
0: cataloged Some unique ID to your artist name, despite what you're called, but... Retro, well, yeah, I mean, and i am
1: already like if I log into my account, I can't manage the other Jeff Miller's albums, so it's already separated that way. So they really
0: dropped the ball. So the answer is uh, Highlander. Highlander for <laughs> Jeff Miller's. Highlander for oh. you know. I think what this is is a is somebody books a house concert. Uh, that's a Jeff Miller battle of the battle of the bands. Yes. Yes. There could be there could be only one. So there's you and this other the Ohio guy and the and the, and the yes. Hispanic. Uh, yes. Rat, well, there's a funny artist. story now. So um,
1: when I, in the days of MySpace, and this is probably like 2005. I had set up my MySpace and uh, I wanted Jeff Miller, and it was pretty early. Like there, it wasn't that popular yet. And I thought oh, I might I might be able to get Jeff Miller and. I didn't, but I was able to get Miller. Miller is the username for my MySpace account, which I think is is more um, preposterous than uh, trying to get Jeff Miller. Yes. And then I thought, uh, oh, Miller Beer is going to send me a message and offer me thousands of dollars for this, but that never happened. But Jeff Miller, the guy who got the Jeff Miller MySpace username, was this, this uh, guy similar age to me, uh, singer-songwriter in uh, like southern delaware and so i i don't remember why i reached out to him i looked at his profile for a while and saw like what he was doing he lived near this area maybe in the town called greenwood delaware and his family helped fund and ran a music festival every year called greenwood stock and because i you know because he got that name before i did and i made this connection with him i ended up playing this festival for like four years in a row
0: wow wow
1: yeah. Isn't that <laughs> neat? That's pretty weird.
0: That's incredible. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. And it was all these like high school kids. And, uh, and the funny, funny thing about it is that it was like, I think it's still kind of true. And like a lot of Delaware is farmland and flat. If you get South of, you know, like Newark and uh, Wilmington, there's not a whole lot uh, going on, I guess. There's not big cities. Yeah. It's all like flat and Yeah. Farmland. So these, like there's all these like high school kids who like don't have anything to do. And that's largely why this Miller family wanted to do this, have this safe uh, avenue for kids to, to enjoy themselves. And so I would go there and, and in this area, Screamo and like metal is very popular. So you'd have, you'd have maybe like 16 acts and at least 10 of them. Were like this screamo and then i would do really well because i wasn't i didn't sound anything like the other acts uh, yes uh, no, there's a good.
0: big contrast there <laughs> a good a good opportunity to, to differentiate yourself
1: yeah it ended up being really helpful but there was
0: i mean from yeah yeah from an outside perspective though it seems incredible to me there must be other jeff millers that are not musicians that are other types of <laughs> uh, of personalities but the simple like critical mass of Jeff Miller's that want to be musicians or are working musicians is is it would be edited out of a screenplay about your musical life because <laughs> it's too preposterous. Jeff, it has been a pleasure catching up with you and learning about what looping means um, and the rest of it. I hope it has been a pleasure for you. Yeah, it was great to talk with
1: you, Josh. Thank you.
0: Episode 18 of You May Contribute a Verse is in the bag. As you can hear, we're wrapping up with something a little different this week. What you're hearing is Cinquantuno, the 12th track from Jeff Miller's fifth studio album titled Loops. This album features Phil Kege, who you might recall is one of the artists who initially inspired Jeff to try looping in the first place. Find Jeff and support his music at jeffmilleronline.com, including all his coming tour dates, socials, merchandise, and links to buy his albums, which you should absolutely do. Thanks so much to Jeff for the conversation. You may contribute a verse as a homespun production, produced, edited, recorded, conceptualized, and marketed by me, Josh Munkin, from the darkness and comfort of my basement. Find the show on Twitter and Facebook as at Verse Show. That's V-E-R-S-E-S-H-O-W. Find me on everything as Josh Monk words, all one word. The artwork for You May Contribute a Verse has changed recently. I am overjoyed to be able to share an amazing picture commissioned for the podcast from a very talented artist, Charlie Munkin, who just turned six. Love you, Charlie. The show's opening theme is a tragic but happy horse, the eponymous track from the album by Robbie Zarr. Robbie is wonderful. Engage with his music and musings at partist.com. That's P-A-R-T-I-S-T dot com. If you would be so kind, however you're listening to this, let me know if you do via rating, which is nice, or just a quick message. It really means a lot. And finally, as we listen to Cinquantuno by Jeff Miller, remember the answer, that you are here that life exists an identity, that the powerful play goes on, and you may contribute a verse.